And welcome to yet another edition of the From the Booth podcast. My name is Cody Clark. His name is Evan Eichen. It is a special Saturday episode of the podcast for you. Uh, Evan, and by special, I mean that schedules didn't really line up during the week, so this is when we're recording it. (laughs) You know, sometimes life just gets in the way, and then you just got to make stuff work, you know? Indeed, indeed. So we're making it work. Got a Saturday edition of the podcast And I want to let Evan touch on something real quick at the top of the show here because, Evan, as I understand it, we were talking about it uh, just passing the one-year anniversary of your interview show, your podcast. Am I correct on that? Yep. Friday the 15th was the one-year anniversary of that that I didn't realize it was coming up on the one-year anniversary until, like, I... I didn't really realize it was the one-year anniversary until someone pointed it out to me. And it's like, well, I have to do something for it. So I did really the only thing I thought would work for it, which is I went back to the first guest I ever had, uh, Charlie Gandes, and then we're like, hey, the one-year anniversary is coming up. You want to come back and just talk about what you've been doing since then? And we said, yeah, yeah, let's do it. And uh, so that came out yesterday. So if you want to check out the one-year anniversary special uh go check out the evanation show for that um it'll be back on its regularly scheduled format for every other thursday so i've got another one coming out next thursday and then maybe like one or two in the month of december and then i'm going to take a break until uh january there you go that sounds good so check out the evanation show uh check out evan's inter- interview show there great stuff uh from evan with that podcast so check that out as well uh, all right, Evan, we have a, a ton of stuff we can dive into. Where do you want to start? We had an NFL brawl. Uh, we got the James Wiseman uh, NCAA. We've got the Chase Young versus the NCAA. What are uh, what are we diving into first here? Well, at this point, I don't know what more we can add to this that hasn't already been said in the last, like, 36-ish hours. But since it was all pretty much anybody was talking about on <laughs> yeah. Friday. I suppose we have to throw our two cents into the end of that Brown Steelers game, which Cody, I don't know if you saw it live, but Oh boy, it was, uh, it was even crazier when you saw it live. Well, and that's what you were telling me because cause you were watching it live and it was, I had gone to bed. Uh, I, I, you know, about the third quarter, I was like, okay, I got to get up and, and prep for prep for my job at the station and, and our show. So I was like, okay, well, you know, this is this is in hand. I'm good here. So I I had tapped out and then I get up and I'm scrolling through Twitter as I'm walking around making breakfast and I was like, what in the world did I miss? This is ridiculous. Well, I originally missed it at first because when I was first watching it, all I caught was like the tail end of it. And I'm like, Oh, I guess there was a a fight at the end of the game. Maybe people got a little too into it. Uh, and when we saw the replay, it was like, I, I don't even know what to say. Uh, so for those of you that have been just avoiding sports and the internet since, uh, (laughs) Thursday night, Uh, the Browns and the Steelers played in the Thursday night football game. And in the final few seconds, Miles Garrett hit Mason Rudolph at the end of the play. There was a bit of a, 
like your standard shoving match between Rudolph and Miles Garrett. At some point, uh, Mason Rudolph's helmet came off, and Miles Garrett swung and hit Mason Rudolph with his own helmet, which then prompted uh, Marquise Pouncey to shove him to the ground, throw a few punches. I think there was a kick or two involved. It was an insane way to end a game that really was kind of overly physical from the beginning because was it was it Deontay Johnson or was it Juju that had the blood coming out of their ear after the helmet after the helmet to helmet hit because they both left for concussions right I think it was uh, Deontay Johnson who was bleeding from his ear and then Juju Smith Schuster who uh, was concussed as well so I think it was Johnson who was bleeding but yeah as you pointed out uh, both of them suffered uh, pretty wild hits uh, Evan, out of that, uh, are, are you okay with where the NFL came down? You had Miles Garrett suspended indefinitely. I believe you had Pouncey get three games. Uh, Mason Rudolph, who some people say started it with his, uh, with his grab of Garrett's helmet and his kick uh, of Garrett in the groin area. Uh, I thought Rudolph should have... Uh, gotten a, a some sort of fine, and maybe he did, and I missed that part. Uh, but he was definitely on the front end of it, I think, something that he should have been fined for. But where do you stand on where the NFL came down with those guys? Uh, well, they came down, and they came down really quick because the NFL kind of had to because they didn't want Sunday's game and all the pregame shows spending the time talking about this instead of the games and then we had to worry about monday morning okay what are they gonna do right the the indefinite suspension seemed like the right one uh the three games marquis pouncey seems a little bit low considering uh like there were punches and kicks involved ogan joby got a game which i i mean i could see why ogan joby got a game for what he did but Assuming that the indefinite suspension just covers this season, <clears throat> excuse me. So assuming that it just covers this season, that means it is going to be a six game suspension. The earliest miles Garrett could apply for reinstatement is the beginning of the new league year. And that's not until March, 2020. If those are the only games he misses, that is the second longest suspension for an on-field act in the in NFL history and the longest was earlier this year when Vontez Burfecht got the rest of the season, which turned out to be 12 games after the hit that he had against, uh, I believe it was Jack Doyle in the Indianapolis game. So do you think that he, the extension, the the suspension, I should say, extends in the next season, or is he going to be on the field uh, week one, 2020? I think he should be on the field week one, 2020. I think... Uh, indefinitely, I think for the rest of this season, uh, covering the indefinite portion of that, I think is more than fair. Uh, I, I, I'm an advocate of, you know, yes, if they don't make the playoffs, it's six games, but you know, if, if you continue, if they make the playoffs, they continue to move on. Miles Garrett doesn't play for the rest of this season. However long that is, if they were running off to the Super Bowl, you know, they still have maybe nine, 10 games left he's still not able to play. So I am I am perfectly good with where the NFL came down. I think he should have to sit out 
uh, this entire the entirety of this season. Uh, be you know if they make the playoffs or not, and then but but definitely back on the field for week one of next year. Uh, you what you still you see what happens. You watch it. Miles Garrett admits, you know, he 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 blew his top. He lost his cool. That's something you can't have. I mean, you you can't have. I know football's a violent game, but you can't have people smashing people upside the head with the with their helmet. I mean, an unprotected human head against a two hundred and seventy five pound man plus potentially uh, swinging said helmet and hitting you over the head. He's lucky the crown of the helmet did not uh, really make contact with Rudolph's head, who's already had a concussion this year and earlier in that game had taken uh, a couple of hits, including one high up under the chin that I believe had gotten flagged. So a very chippy game. Uh, I'm definitely behind the rest of this season suspension for Miles Garrett, but I do believe that he should be back on the field for week one next year. Even if, even if that's just that, I, who knows how, how much of this is going to follow Miles Garrett throughout his career? Because he's kind of quietly built a, a reputation this year as a guy who has you know late hits. He had the two roughing the passer penalties in the New York Jets game. One of them ended in ended up a. Uh, breaking Trevor Simeon's ankle and he had to miss the whole season. And then there was the fight with Delaney Walker in the season opening game against Tennessee. I feel like the NFL got it right in the sense that they had to do something and they had to do something immediately because it was a nationally televised game. This was a horrible look for all involved and they didn't want this to be the dominant story going into the, what is actually a pretty good slate of games for week 11. So I, I was maybe surprised is not the right word, but the response to what had happened between like the miles Garrett fight, the Cleveland Brown stuff was Cody. It was borderline universal in the sense that, Oh, he's got to be suspended for a long time. You can't do stuff like that. Outside of, like, a couple of Cleveland Browns fans on Twitter, there was nobody that was really defending Miles Garrett, which I found somewhat surprising, but at the same time, I understood it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this that's something, you know, and, you know, everyone says this, but if if that if that happens off the football field, I mean, you go you go to you go to jail for for quite a quite a long time. So, I mean, it's really hard to defend Miles Garrett there. And, and look, we've all been in situations where we probably lose our cool or, you know, you do something that you normally wouldn't do, but the emotions of a moment or something like that boil over and something happens. But you just can't you just can't have those sorts of things happening. And when it does, you know, in the moment, of course, it boils over. I'm sure Miles Garrett didn't really intend for it to get there, but you just get caught up in the moment and the the juices are flowing and you know he felt like Rudolph had come at him first with the with the little the little like the little kick that Rudolph had when he was on the ground so it just boiled over from there so you had to take care of it as you mentioned if you were the NFL but yeah I mean this is something that if it happens outside of football I mean you're going away for quite a while so 
it was something that had to happen, and it's really, really tough to defend something like that. Uh, you were mentioning the Pouncey suspension. I thought that one was pretty appropriate. Maybe you could have given him a couple more, but I mean, it's you know, and and for Pouncey's sake, it's it's one of those things where you're protecting you're protecting your quarterback, which is perfectly okay. Everyone understands that part, but then you also still have to understand that you can't be doing that. Uh, kicking somebody, punching somebody while they're on the ground under uh, a couple of different players unable to really defend themselves. So, you know, that one makes a lot of sense there. So all in all, for me, most of it was handled pretty well by the NFL, I think, but but just really a tough look uh, on, a, on, a, on a standalone night, Thursday night football game, couple of teams in Pittsburgh and Cleveland that really do not like each other. And you had you had the guys come away. You know, you had Baker Mayfield say, you know, that's inexcusable. We can't have that. You said you had Odell Beckham Jr. come out and say, you know, it, it's hard to walk out of here with a smile. Yeah, we won the game 21 to 7. Uh, you know, we're trying to to make the playoffs and we feel good about getting a win, but we don't feel good about what happened because one there's really no place for those sorts of things on the football field and for two, you know, you lose a really, really good player. So Miles Garrett on the defensive line for Cleveland, for them to make the playoffs, I felt like he was going to have to be a big part of it. Now it's going to be very interesting for me, Evan, to watch that team try to make a run without him because he's a guy you have to double team, you have to scheme for, and even then sometimes it's difficult to stop him. And so without him in the lineup, Things are already difficult for Cleveland in terms of having to rattle off wins, and I understand the schedule is easier, but it it, it definitely makes things tougher for this Browns team. Okay, a, a couple of things. One, uh, there are reports that Mason Rudolph is going to be fined for his part in it, but I can't find a definitive amount. I suppose they haven't quite settled on that, or he's going to be fined an undisclosed amount. But one of the one thing that got lost in like the the black hole that is this fight is Cody do you know the last time since the Browns joined the NFL in 1999 when they beat the Steelers and Baltimore in the same season when was the last time that happened let's say 2001 the answer is never oh wow they've never beaten Pittsburgh and Baltimore in the same year and it's, you know, we should be talking about, hey, they went in and they beat Pittsburgh in, I can't, I, I think it's beating them on the road. Uh, was the, the Baltimore game, I think, was in Baltimore when they played. Right. In, in the beginning of the year. So when we should have been talking about that. Instead, we spent the whole time talking about this brawl. And it's just an unfortunate look for all involved, but we've got a really good slate coming up. And the one game that I was surprised didn't get flexed was the Houston Texans at Baltimore Ravens game. It's Lamar versus Deshaun. And the last time those two met was in 2016 when Lamar Jackson, Lamar Jackson's Heisman trophy year at Louisville. And those two put on a show. Is that the most exciting game of the weekend, the Lamar Jackson-Deshaun Watson showdown? For me, it is, Evan, because you've got those two young quarterbacks, but you also you look at where those two teams are. And when you look at the AFC, 
you know, the Patriots are eight and one, but their schedule has been incredibly uh, easy. We'll say the loss is to the Ravens and they got beat pretty soundly uh, in a lot of facets of that football game. So Baltimore right behind New England, uh, New England, the one seed, Baltimore, the two seed, and the Houston Texans are right there tied for the three seed with Buffalo. So this is a game that uh, a head-to-head matchup between Baltimore and Houston that's very, very important. And yeah, just to be able to watch these two quarterbacks, uh, Deshaun Watson and his athleticism and what he does for Houston, uh, Lamar Jackson's ability to run the football, this 1 p.m. game, Uh, This Sunday, definitely going to be the most interesting game for me because, Evan, this will have major, major implications on where these two teams finish in the playoff standings. And, you know, the Patriots are 8-1, and but they have not looked good at times. The schedule has been a little soft. You could argue that Baltimore and Houston are, you know, two of the, the, the two best teams in the AFC. You know, an argument could be made for each one of them. You know, albeit the records, Houston at six and three, Baltimore at seven and two, and New England at eight and one. But Houston has a lot of weapons. Baltimore has a lot of weapons. We just saw the Ravens beat the Patriots. So absolutely, this is a game I'm very, very interested in because this is a matchup between two teams: Houston, who's won two in a row; Baltimore, who's run, who's won five in a row, and with the Patriots seemingly in a state of flux offensively these are the next two teams that I think are really really poised to make a move and where is Kansas City in all of this Evan because they just lost to the Tennessee Titans with Patrick Mahomes back under center they are six and four sitting right behind Houston Buffalo and Baltimore so yeah this is this is a really 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 big game I was surprised that this was the game that didn't get flexed to either the four o'clock kick or the three o'clock kick or the Sunday night game. Uh, well, where Kansas City fits in all this is they are on their way to Mexico to play a Monday night game against the Chargers. Uh, but to go back to what happened last week, uh, when they lost to they they being Kansas City, when they lost to the Tennessee Titans. I felt that losing that game for Kansas City sort of slammed the door shut on Marcus Mariota in Tennessee. Maybe maybe I'm overreacting to it, but that that game felt like just kind of a definitive end for the Mariota era in Tennessee because he was benched for Ryan Tannehill, and it seems like the team has gotten better since Tannehill was in there? Yeah, no, I mean, that's a great point. You look at what Tannehill has done. He beats the Chiefs 35-32, a close loss against the Panthers. They beat the Buccaneers. They beat the Chargers. I mean, this is a team that was uh, 2-4, and and all of a sudden they're now 5-5, and and they are right in the thick of things in that uh, division with Houston and with the Colts. So, no, this is, you know, it's a great point, and, Tannehill coming in off the bench for Mariota. You know, you and I have talked about in the past, Demarcus Mariota, Jameis Winston, you know, those two guys and where they are in their NFL futures. It sure looks like in Tennessee, Mariota's on his way out. Tannehill's going to be the guy for right now until they maybe find their next guy 
Uh, but yeah, Tannehill has played really, really well. He's completing 70% of his passes. Uh, he's he's almost 1,200 yards, eight touchdowns. And when you have a, a running back like Derrick Henry, Tennessee, pretty solid on defense, uh, a pretty pretty good defensive unit. So yeah, it's it, you know it's been kind of fun to watch Tannehill rejuvenate this team. You know, this is a team that was a little down and out, but all of a sudden now they're only they're right back in it with the Colts, with the Texans. You know, if, if Houston loses, Tennessee wins this weekend, maybe you get a Colts loss. All of a sudden, you're staring at the top of the uh, AFC South. So, you know, I, I definitely think Mariota, as you point out, and we've talked about before, uh, probably his time in Tennessee is finished. Uh, he will have to resurrect himself potentially as a backup quarterback somewhere maybe a starter for a team we just don't know what the future holds for him yet but this has been a nice little run for Tennessee they've won three of their last four in a big game this weekend against the Jacksonville Jaguars uh, or actually that's next weekend excuse me they have the weekend off but uh but yeah big matchup uh that game in the division between those two teams because Evan in the AFC South, I picked the Texans, you picked the Colts, but you look at all of those teams, and they're really all bunched up right there. And isn't that just kind of what happens every year? Like, there's n- outside of maybe when Peyton Manning was there in Indianapolis, there was never a sense of, of oh, yeah, this team has, like a, has a massive lead, so you can just kind of pencil them in as division champions. So I feel like the AFC South just kind of does that, where you look up every year and – somehow like Tennessee's nine and seven and you're like I have never I have literally never seen this team play how are they nine and seven every year uh but look speaking of the playoff picture and I feel like this is semi irresponsible of me to ask you this but I feel like I for the sake of argument I'm going to do it anyway the NFC wild card the wild cards right now are the Minnesota Vikings who just had the big win against Dallas and the Seattle Seahawks who just went into San Francisco and defeated the, the previously unbeaten San Francisco 49ers. There is a two game cushion between those two and everybody else. So Cody, I feel somewhat irresponsible asking this, but after 10 games, does the NFC field seem kind of set to me? It does feel kind of set. There's one team. It's the Philadelphia Eagles who you know, I don't think are out of it. The Eagles, the Rams, and the Panthers are all five and four. The Eagles have the New England Patriots coming up. They have the Seahawks, uh, which are two very tough games. But then it's Dolphins, Giants, Redskins, Cowboys, Giants. The close to the season for the Eagles could really allow them to make a late push. Uh I, they need one of the next two against the Patriots and the Seahawks. They have to have one of those next two, in my opinion, no doubt. Uh, if you were to somehow, you know, pull out both of those, uh, that would be that would be huge. But I would not count the Eagles out. But yeah, Evan, you look at it. The 49ers, the Packers, the Saints, the Cowboys, the Seahawks, the Vikings, they have been the most consistent performers in the NFC and they've all, Evan, got to be sitting there thinking to themselves, looking across at the AFC, New England has looked looked okay. Baltimore has looked very good at times. Houston has their, has their moments. Kansas City has their moments. 
But if you're in the NFC, you're looking over there going, man, why can't we be in the AFC? We would be we would be leading this conference. Pretty much everyone outside of Dallas would be right at the top of the AFC. As you mentioned, Minnesota, they're a wild card at 7-3. and three. They would be the two seed in the AFC. I think from a wild card perspective, it feels kind of set considering that Seattle at the number six spot has a two-game lead over everybody else. Uh, when it comes to Dallas and Philadelphia, they're just fighting for the East. And it's not like if one of them doesn't win, they can just say, well, you know, we can still go for the six seed. Right, yeah, just, you'd it, have to get Minnesota to lose a couple of games. Which could potentially happen. Uh, Seattle, they might actually win the Am I crazy to think that San Francisco might stumble and then you look up and now Seattle is the number one seed? No, I don't think so. I mean, you saw Seattle uh, take down San Francisco 27-24 in overtime. That was a great uh, Monday night football game. Uh, that, you know, if you if you love if you love football, that game had everything. You you know you had missed kicks. You had um, you had pretty much everything with the the young up and coming quarterback Jimmy Garoppolo. You had the uh, the veteran Russell Wilson doing his thing. No, I could see it happening. Uh, 49ers have the Cardinals and then a very, very tough stretch with the Packers, Ravens, and Saints. The Ravens and the Saints are both on the road. Then they go Falcons, Rams, Seahawks. So, no, Evan, I don't think so. You could very well have Seattle, San Francisco. It's the final game of the regular season for both of those teams. That could very well be for the division. I mean, when you look at it, You've got, uh, as I mentioned there with the 49ers, Seattle right now at 8-2 and two is the first wild card team. But uh, their remaining schedule is the Eagles, Vikings, Rams, Panthers, Cardinals, 49ers. It's a similar stretch for both of those teams in terms of, I think when I look at it here just off the top of my head, both of them have potentially games left against three playoff teams one of those being against each other the final game of the season. So, no, I, I mean, we could look up Week 17, and these two teams are playing for the division title. That is definitely something that I could see possible because they have similar stretches of games in terms of degree of difficulty from a schedule standpoint. And we just saw in the Seahawks win uh, the three-point, the field goal victory in overtime, they're two pretty evenly matched teams as well. So it's going to be a very, very tight race in the NFC. And I definitely think that we could see the Seahawks uh, jumping out and winning that division if they're able to take that game in the final week of the regular season. Seattle is on a bye, so we don't see them again until November 24th. And that November 24th game is in Philadelphia. So So it sounds like it's going to be a cold day in Philly when they go there uh, the week, the Sunday before Thanksgiving. Uh, when it comes to Dallas and Philadelphia, like this season hasn't quite turned out the way that Philadelphia or that either of us expected. I picked Carson Wentz to win the MVP. I was way off on that, and I and I picked Philadelphia to go to the Super Bowl, which could still happen, but uh, like a lot of things would need to go their way if they're going to pull that off. Right. So. I'm going to take the next couple of minutes to just apologize to a couple of teams and a couple of fan bases. First off, Cody, I was wrong about the Oakland Raiders. <laughs> I picked the Oakland Raiders to go five and 11. 
last place in the AFC West. And by the time they left Oakland, the general mood on the black hole was, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Have fun in Vegas. See you later. But this is a fun, interesting team. Josh Jacobs kind of by himself is making the Khalil Mack trade look a little less absurd. And if the Bears keep free-falling, that pick could wind up in the top 12. Yeah, absolutely. Top 15. So then if they need another wide receiver, there are a lot of wide receivers are going to be available. You've got the two wide, you've got the two Alabama guys, Ruggs and Judy. Maybe they go after another offensive lineman or a defensive lineman or something like that. So I have to apologize to the Raiders. I thought they were going to go five and 11. The city of Oakland was going to turn on them. And by the time they got to Vegas, like Oakland isn't sad to see them go. And another team that I was wrong on that I feel like I need to apologize to is the Baltimore Ravens. Because I picked them to go 8-8 eight and eight and miss the playoffs, and uh, they are making me look stupid. Hey, I'm right there with you on both of those teams. I, you know, I had the Steelers winning that division. Uh, I did not have the Ravens in, and it clearly looks like Lamar Jackson and that offense uh, are going to uh, definitely get them in. And when talking about the Raiders, yeah, it's a great point, Evan. I mean, Josh Jacobs, you have Derek Carr, those two guys really just kind of humming along and, and boosting this Raiders team. They're coming off of a, a couple of wins. They beat the Lions by a touchdown. They beat the Chargers by a couple of points. Um, you know, and you look at the rest of the schedule for the Oakland Raiders, Evan, their next two are the Bengals and the Jets. And so, you know, if you're able to win a couple of those games there, all of a sudden you're seven and four and you're staring at the game against Kansas City that follows there and you're thinking, hey, we're, you know, we got this. We're right here. And who would have thought? Definitely not me. And, you know, this this Raiders team, the defense is is still a problem. I mean, that that is a unit that is giving up quite a bit of points. I think they've given up 30 points in three games, 27 or more in five or six games that they've played. So that's an issue. But all you do is you look up and they're a half game back in the AFC West with a couple of easier opponents before the Chiefs contest. And the Chiefs have the Chargers and then a bye and then the Raiders. So you know, it's really a testament, I you know, to what John Gruden and that team have done. And you look at it, and I don't think anyone had them pegged. So, you know, it, it's an apology from everybody because I think we all just kind of counted them out. The Antonio Brown chaos, all of that, they're, they're on their way out, one foot out the door. And you look at it, and they're 4-1 and one at home. They're, they've already won two division games. And they're sitting right there a half game behind Kansas City with that matchup coming up in just a few weeks. So I don't think anyone would have pegged it. You you make a great point about the Chicago Bears pick because the Bears are 4-5 and five and they seem to be headed in the wrong direction, albeit coming off of a win against the Lions. They had lost four in a row. They have the Rams, Giants, Lions, uh, a really nearly impossible close to the season for the Bears. They go Dallas at Green Bay, Kansas City at Minnesota. So Oakland's definitely sitting there going, hey, you know, we're 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 outperforming expectations. We may get some help from Chicago if they falter late. We can get a better draft pick out of that. 
and all of a sudden you're you're looking at a, a much better situation, you know, maybe heading to Vegas than I think some of us would have uh, would have anticipated. A half game back in the AFC West in mid-November, which I don't, which nobody saw coming. Yeah, who'd have thunk it? If the Raider, if the Raiders were a half game back in the AFC West, that would mean either A, the AFC West suddenly got good, or B, <laughs> this was the division where everybody underperformed and Kansas City went like eight and eight and won the division. Uh, the next time they play is November twenty. Is they also don't play again until November twenty fourth, and that's against the New York the New York Jets, but you pointed it out like going into the year, this had season from hell written all over it. Like Antonio Brown gets cut by the team. What two days before the season opener goes to new England. He only lasts like two weeks and then he's gone. And we still had, we had question marks about is Derek Carr going to be the guy? He appears to be the guy for now when they at least go to Vegas in 2020. It, you know, I think it it's a testament to how well like this team has rallied around each other because that this could have gone sideways about a dozen times at this point. So a uh, good job by the Oakland Raiders to uh, keep the ship somewhat righted and they just didn't go off the rails and we're in contention to the number one overall pick but cody we're gonna move on to college football uh the penn state nittany lions were the number four team in the country in the initial college football playoff rankings they had to go to minnesota and play the gophers and we said off air that if penn state was going to lose this game two things needed to happen They needed to turn the ball over, and Minnesota had to cash them in. And they got 14 points off of two first-quarter turnovers, and that ended up being the difference, and then they beat the Penn State and Indy Lions. And Minnesota jumped from 17 all the way to 8. Does that seem like too big of a jump, or is that just right? I thought it was just right uh, for the Gophers. You look at all of the – you know, so let's look at all of the teams in between – uh, that they were able to jump, and you look at uh, when you look at uh, Notre Dame, Michigan, Wisconsin, Baylor, Auburn, Florida, Oklahoma, jumped Penn State obviously because they beat Penn State. Penn State now at number nine in the new ranking. I I thought it was pretty appropriate. You know the schedule for Minnesota, as we talked about early in the season, out of conference. Not a good schedule, and they did not perform well. They won uh, their first three games uh, against, you know, the the South Dakota states of the world, and they weren't very impressive. And that was that's something that's going to hold them back. That strength of schedule uh, when we when we come down to it, I think it was Georgia Southern, South Dakota State, and Fresno, and they beat them by like eighteen combined points or something like that. But, you know, in the what have you done for me lately, they get a huge win against Penn State, and they're going to play two more ranked teams. They're in Iowa today, this afternoon, and then they will play Wisconsin in the final regular season game of the year. So, you know, this is a team that has a real, real chance to push here late. I think it's pretty appropriate. I was honestly a little surprised they moved up to eight because that is a, a really big jump, and that shows that, you know, the committee thinks that, that you know, 
they could seriously, you know, contend for that college football playoff spot at four if you're able to close out. You know, you obviously have to run the table from here on out, I think, for them. Maybe they could be in the conversation with one loss. But I think the committee said, hey, we think this team uh, is definitely in contention, and they put them at eight in a spot where if they keep winning, you know, Oregon and Utah right ahead of them, they will both play. One of them is going to fall. Uh, you continue to win. You have Alabama ahead at number five, uh, who still has to play a very good Auburn team. So it's it's an interesting spot because I think the committee said, hey, we, we recognize what they did. They beat uh, Penn State, who we had in the college football playoff, the first ranking at number four. We think it's a very good team. So I thought the committee is saying, hey, we we think this is a really good football team. But they didn't, you know, overreact and jump them much higher than eight, obviously because of some of the early season schedule that they have or had, I guess I should say. If Minnesota were to get into the top four, they'd have to leapfrog Alabama, Oregon, Utah, and Georgia, who's sitting at number four. But if you're Minnesota, you are in a tremendous position right now because even if you make it to the Big Ten title game against Ohio State and lose, your consolation prize is you get to go to the Rose Bowl. So Minnesota is in a position where even if we don't make the playoffs, we still get to go to the Rose Bowl, which is something Minnesota hasn't done in a long, long time. So they are in a tremendous position from a what their postseason looks like perspective. Uh, looking at the other teams, uh, LSU moved up to the number one spot after beating Alabama. And Cody, that game almost broke me because when when Devontae Smith caught that pass and went 85 yards to make it a one-score game, I was sitting there thinking, LSU's going to blow this. <laughs> like, LSU's going to blow this. Like this game, this game was over. It's a two-score game with like a minute 25 left. And then Devont, and then Tua throws one pass to Devontae Smith, and he goes 85 yards. And I'm just sitting there like LSU's going to blow it. Alabama's going to find a way to win this game, and then we're going to talk about how LSU had the 20 point halftime lead, and they just they just couldn't handle it. So thank you LSU for winning that game because if you had lost, like I I I don't know what I would have done. It was a great response by LSU. I think it, it definitely showed people why they're the best team in the country right now. You had the 20-point halftime lead. Uh, Alabama came out and did Alabama things. They got a couple of touchdowns from uh, Najee Harris. They cut it to six, and then Joe Burrow responds with a drive. Uh, Clyde edwards Lair touchdown moves it back out to 12. They don't get the two-point conversion. Alabama responds again with a touchdown, cuts it to five. Joe Burrow again puts together a drive capped by a Clyde edwards Elaire touchdown run to take it back to 12. And then you had the late touchdown with 121, and LSU was able to hold on. Evan, that was a game that was 33-20 to heading into the fourth quarter. You had five fourth-quarter touchdowns scored. Uh, college football game of the year so far for me, just in terms of the talent on the field and, and the way this game played out. A fantastic football game. And Evan, I want to get your thoughts here because, you know, in reading a lot of the different college football playoff scenarios and just how I feel about Alabama's schedule, 
the committee is going to come into this conundrum and we always hear about, you know, the the best four teams versus the most deserving when you, you look at this entire uh, system. Alabama has Mississippi State, Western Carolina, and Auburn left on their schedule. They have to win out, in my opinion, uh, to even have a chance to get into the college football playoff. If they drop that game, the last game of the year, to Auburn with two losses, I don't think the you know I don't think that's going to be uh, something that they could get in with. But Evan, even if they run the table and are able to beat Mississippi State, Western Carolina, and Auburn in the Iron Bowl, is this a team that can still get into the college football playoff? You think? Or are they going to be on the outside looking in? Because I see it the way it is right now. You have LSU, Ohio State, Clemson, one, two, and three. And, and it seems to be those three, assuming they all take care of business, maybe you could argue with Clemson in terms of the lack of strength of schedule, but you're looking at Georgia at four, Alabama at five, Oregon and Utah are at six and seven, but will most likely play each other, you know, they'll play each other in the Pac-12 championship game, I think we all assume. And so the winner of that game alone would probably have a better strength of schedule than Alabama, a better win late in the year. And so you start to look at it and you go, you know, I could see a scenario where Alabama runs the the table the rest of the way and they still don't get into the college football playoff. Am I crazy to think that? No, I don't think so. I mean, it's, it's plausible, but that would depend on what happens with Georgia because Georgia has to go into Auburn which the last few times Georgia has got into Auburn and the most recent one was the Nick Marshall prayer at Jordan Hare game. I mean, Georgia might just lose to Auburn and then Alabama slides up to number four and then it just winds up being a moot point. Uh, If I were to look at that group of teams behind Alabama and to say, okay, if six through eight gets in and who's the most likely – if Minnesota can find a way to stay undefeated and maybe not win the Big Ten title game, but not look overwhelmed against Ohio State, I think that that helps their case. Otherwise, I'd probably take Oregon because outside of that one game in the season opener against Auburn, which you can make the argument they shouldn't have lost that game, which is Bo Nix made a crazy play at the end of that game to, to pull it out. You know, if I look at that group underneath, I think Oregon, assuming Minnesota stumbles at some point between right now and the final rankings, is the most likely out of that out of that non-Alabama group to to get in. But this is the I think this is the first time that I can remember. If there's been other years, then I just don't remember like the season where you look into where we are in mid-November and you can make a case for all eight of the teams in the top eight. Normally, like the number seven team, you just kind of look at like, yeah, like a lot needs to happen for number seven to have a chance. But I mean, you can talk yourself into Utah being the number four team. You can talk yourself into Minnesota. You can talk yourself into Oregon. Maybe you can... I mean, they're all the way down at 13, but maybe you can talk yourself into Baylor having a Minnesota-type rise if they beat Oklahoma in Waco this week, which, by the way, that's where game day is. 
you know, there there's a pretty deep field this year, and that goes against Alabama's favor because in 2017, where they didn't win their division but got in anyway, the argument against that was, well, Ohio State. Well, Ohio State had two losses, and one of them was a brutal blowout loss to, to the Iowa Hawkeyes that year. Right. So when you look at the field, Alabama's got their work cut out for them, and it's not as simple as, oh, well, if Alabama just takes care of business, the field will sort itself out. Like, I don't think that's the case this year. Yeah, no, it's a great point because you look at, and, and especially, you know, a team I kind of zero in on is Oregon there at number six because, you know, you had Oregon and Utah, I believe, both on buys last week and each kind of move up one spot just with the way everything shook out with Penn State falling. You look at Oregon, their lone loss is to Auburn. So with Auburn still playing Alabama and still playing Georgia, if I'm not mistaken, then, you know, this is a team in Oregon whose one loss could potentially come against a team in Auburn that has a a, a really good chance to put some great uh, wins on the board here late in the year. You know, if you get uh, you get one or two of these late in the season, Auburn, uh, they very, very tightly contested game with LSU. Uh, an 11-point loss at Florida. Uh, looking at the rest of they beat Oregon early in the year. They have Georgia, Bama, and Samford left, so they'll have, you know, a, a cupcake squeezed in between uh, the Georgia and Alabama game. Evan, they get both of those at home. So, you know, every game that Auburn wins here late in the year, that plays a factor in looking at Oregon from that very first game of the year, in my opinion. So, yeah, I kind of I zero in on, on that Oregon Ducks team. With Alabama and the lack of, of, of quality competition that they have to play, for the most part, the rest of the year, in terms of they'll have the Iron Bowl, but that's about it. Oregon has the one loss to Auburn, who, if they could put a couple of wins on the board here late in the year, that one loss looks better Plus, they have a chance to beat a Utah who is ranked currently at seven right behind them. And so if you're, you know, you're a one-loss Pac-12 champ and you have that Oregon, or excuse me, you have that uh, that Oregon, that, <laughs> sorry, the Utah win on your schedule late in the year. People will all be tuning in to watch that game. Then that one loss against Auburn doesn't look as bad. And so you're looking at Oregon going, hey, why not the Ducks? So I kind of zero in on that Oregon team as really kind of poised to, because of that, their lone loss coming to Auburn and it being the way it was in the first game of the year, I think they could really, really have a nice case for that number four spot if they are able to run it out the rest of the way. The one thing working against Utah is that loss to what turned out to be a pretty average USC team where it seems obvious that Clay Helton is on his way out the door. That's the one thing working against the Utah Utes, which Utah and Kyle Whittingham has built a really good program down there at a, down there in Utah, which when they joined, 
joined the Pac-10, when they joined, well, it was the Pac-10 at the time, but eventually became the Pac-12. But when they joined the what was then the Pac-10, we were wondering how competitive is this Utah team going to be? Uh, turns out pretty competitive. Uh, they were going to be a, they were going to be a force in the Pac-12 uh, within a couple of years. Yeah, absolutely. And and Evan, just to touch real quick on as you were talking about, you know, when it gets down to it, you know, we do look at who you lost to as well, not only who you beat. And so when you're looking at this next group, let's say four through eight, Minnesota hasn't lost to anybody. Alabama just lost to the best team in the country. Georgia uh, has one loss. Oregon has one loss. Utah has one loss. But Utah's loss is against inferior competition than uh, Alabama, than Oregon, and maybe a Minnesota, depending on what happens late in the year. So, you know, we do kind of look at that, and that does play into it as well. So I think it's going to be fascinating late here in the season because you have these teams that, you know, you could have uh, one or even two losses Georgia, Alabama, Oregon, Utah, Minnesota, this whole group right there fighting for that number four and maybe number three spot. Maybe Clemson isn't as solidified as we think they are right now undefeated at the three spot. I don't see them stumbling, but depending on how the rest of the season goes with some of these other teams, Maybe Clemson's not as safe as we thought there, so it's gonna be gonna be interesting to watch because there's uh, there's a lot that could still happen here late in the year. You've got a lot of different games with a lot of implications, particularly today, as you mentioned. You have Baylor, Oklahoma. You have Minnesota, Iowa. Uh, some games that are really really important to what's going on in this uh, race for the four spots in the college football playoff. And it's going to be a great last few weeks. Uh, I'm still, I'm still, ex- even though Penn State lost to Minnesota, that November 23rd matchup in Columbus against Ohio State is still a huge deal when you look at what's going on with uh, the field of the college football playoff. Is that game could have big implications because maybe Ohio State stumbles and loses. You know, these things happen. And we'll move on to the NBA, Cody. We are. 12, 13 games into the season, and the Golden State Warriors right now are in one hell of a bind here. They they look like they're going to go from five straight finals to the best lottery odds if they're, if this season plays out. Uh, Clay Thompson is probably going to miss the whole year. They lost Kevin Durant. They lost Iguodala. They lost Sean Livingston. Uh Steph Curry has the broken hand, and he's going to miss significant time, if not the rest of the season. Is there a way that Golden State can turn this around? Because right now they are 2-11 and and have one of, if not the worst records in the NBA. Uh, no, there is not a way that Golden State turns this around. I think 13 games in, you know, I'm going to, having lost six in a row, I just don't see it. This is... This is a unit that does not have a, did not have a lot of depth coming into this season. They brought in D'Angelo Russell. This was a team that needed its entire cast, an entire healthy cast of Klay Thompson, Steph Curry, D'Angelo Russell, and Draymond Green to be able to compete this season. Klay Thompson obviously hurt in the finals. He will be out uh, for 
essentially this entire season. And Evan, I think with how they've started, that now if I'm Golden State, Clay Thompson doesn't play this season for me. Uh, it's it's something where maybe if he is absolutely 100%, he gets a, a run the last couple of weeks just to get uh, in some action. But for me, he would not play. I'm not rushing Steph back. Draymond and D'Angelo Russell have each been in and out with uh, banged up injuries. But Evan, this is a team that I believe has to finish in the lottery to keep the first round pick. So this is a team that, you know, maybe you maybe everyone got healthy, you catch a little fire late in the year, but what would that get you? You know, the eighth spot in the Western Conference and you forfeiting that pick, or you could say, okay, we've gone to five straight finals, you know, pretty much everything that could go wrong this year went wrong in terms of everyone getting hurt. So let's just get everybody healthy. Let's nab us a, a top lottery pick and kind of regroup, reboot next year and see what we can do. As it stands right now, they are pretty safely in the lottery discussion because at 2-11, and 11, they have the worst record in the NBA. Uh, Cody, I know you were an Orlando Magic guy, so I have to know... What are your what are your thoughts on the orange magic uniforms? Because it just seems a little jarring and out of place. I guess I, I kind of like them, you know, with the the ties to the citrus industry uh, in Central Florida, uh, in Florida. You know, I kind of like it. I, I liked them. I mean, I, I think they're kind of sharp. They're, you know, they're not over the top though. I mean, the orange is a bit jarring, uh, but it's not something where it's like an orange jersey it it's orange accents on the jersey in terms of the lettering and the numbers and the name and that kind of stuff so it is a little bit jarring but i like where it's the accent it's not the main uh kind of kind of look there at least on the you know the one they've revealed so you know i kind of like it it's it's different uh but it's not you know really intricate it's not like crazy crazy out there it's just you know here's a here's a jersey with some orange on it so you know I I, I kind of like it. it you know it's it doesn't do a ton for me but I, I like the you know the homage to the you know the the citrus industry here in the state of Florida and what that's done for the area and the region and the state so you know I kind of like it I mean it's I think it's gonna have to be in a more of an acquired taste to me because I was really confused. Like, why are they going orange? There has never been orange <laughs> in the Orlando Magic color palette. Then I had to okay, it has to do with Florida oranges and you know orange. Yeah, okay. So at first I was like, I'm really confused. Like this says, what is this orange? Like it's never been in the Magic's color palette. But the NBA, we've had. Already a pretty wild time in the NBA. We had the Dion Waiters plane incident where he's on a team that, A, he's already in the doghouse and hasn't played this year, and then he got suspended for 10 games for... Oh, my goodness. And I almost... And I feel horrible laughing at this because the guy actually had to go to the hospital for it, but he consumed an edible on a team flight and had a panic attack, and he's been suspended for 10 games for conduct detrimental. And then the New York Knicks decided they were going to do New York Knicks things. And 10 games into the year, the president of the team came out and has public, well, somewhat publicly angled for David Fisdale to get fired. And then after that, the news story came out that, well, you know, Kevin Durant 
was never in our long-term plans. It's like, well, if the plans of your team was the general manager to try and uh, do a coup d'etat 10 days into 10 games into the season, I could see why Kevin Durant would not fit into those plans. So what the hell's going on in New York? This is the Knicks. This is this is James Dolan and the Knicks because this is, and, and you know, and we got to see the the Knicks a few times when I was in Orlando. Got to hear Coach Fizdale speak, uh, you know, at some at some shoot arounds and at uh, you know pregame when he does media availability and that kind of stuff. And you know, I I have you know I have no clue what's going on inside that organization the team dynamic with Fizdale, with the roster. But Evan, this is a this is a bad roster. This is not a competing for a playoff spot roster. And for me, Fizdale is a great coach. He knows a ton about the game. He has seemed to be able to develop talent. Uh, develop and bring along some of the younger guys that the Knicks have. RJ Barrett has played well here early in the year. But this is a bad roster. This is a team that in free agency went out and brought in 19 forwards. They brought in Marcus Morris. They brought in Taj Gibson. uh, They brought in Bobby Portis. They brought in Julius Randle. They all play the same position. And so you you were scratching your head on what the Knicks were doing with the roster after they didn't get Anthony Davis, they didn't get Kyrie, they didn't get Kevin Durant. I got news for you. If any of those guys had come to New York the Knicks were able to land them, the Knicks would not be 3-9 and nine right now, and, this, and thus there would not be a conversation about the Knicks wanting to fire Fizdale. Fizdale is a good coach. The Knicks roster is bad. And so this is just classic Knicks and Knicks organization because I think Fizdale is a great guy for that Knicks job, but this is just not a roster that is competitive enough for a playoff spot on a night-in, night-out basis the answer is not fire, in my opinion. The answer is not firing Fizdale. They're just not good enough. But if they were able to get one of those guys and bring them in, they would have a better record, and thus there would probably not be this conversation about firing Fizdale. They're three and nine right now, and last in the Atlantic Division, and one of the worst records in the NBA because they don't have enough talent on the roster to compete for a playoff spot. It's not David. It's it's not Fizdale's fault. They just don't have the talent. But you can't tell me that if they wouldn't have brought one of those guys in, maybe they lucked into a a Kyrie Irving and a Kevin Durant or something like that. Maybe even one of those guys, they wouldn't be in this position right now. So that's just what that's the part I don't understand. This is just the Knicks being the Knicks, and this is why the Knicks have been awful for the past however many years. Because I think you have a guy that is a very, very good coach that knows what's happening. He knows what he's doing, but there just isn't the talent on the roster. But, you know, Fizdale isn't the one signing players. That's the front office's job. So you're kind of rocking a hard place if you're Fizdale. You're trying to, to bring along this roster. You're trying to improve. Uh, they've got a couple, They've randomly got a couple of nice wins against the Mavericks this year uh, on their on their docket. That's pretty much all they've done. But, you know, Fizdale's just in a tough spot because, you know, as you pointed out, the Knicks saying, oh, Kevin Durant wasn't part of our long-term plan. Like, this is a this is a botched job by the front office. This is not Fizdale's fault. You, no, it's not. And I can understand why the front office would be like, yes, it's the head coach's fault and totally not my fault that we 
traded Kristaps Porzingis to the Mavericks on the hope that we might get Kevin Durant, and then we didn't get him. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, we had absolutely nothing to do with the way this roster is constructed right now. It's it, it's a mess in New York, and it has been for a while, and there was a, a, a an NBA player, uh, I want to say it was Durant, or somebody went on like a radio show and talked about my whole life, the Knicks have never been good. Like, the guys coming to the league now are in their, they're our age. Like, we, I'm about to, I'm going to turn 27 years old on November 25th. I am considered like a grizzled elder statesman veteran in NBA years. Like, so my whole life, like, I don't remember the last time the Knicks were good. Like they had, they had a couple of years with Carmelo Anthony where they were fine, but there was never like a, Oh, you know, you got to watch out for the New York Knicks. It was just like, okay, they were, they were okay. But, and I think that's working against them as well. Right. Uh, But the one team that nothing is working against right now are the Boston Celtics who are at 10 and one and have the best record in the NBA. They're on a 10-game winning streak, and they are showing no signs of slowing down. Kemba Walker has been an upgrade in every conceivable way from Kyrie Irving. And you would think that with the way last year ended and then losing Al Horford and all the stuff that went on with like the, you know, the the drama, it left a sour taste with me going into the 2019-2020 season, which we talked about in our NBA preview. Um, the, the sour taste is gone. Like I am, I am in on this Boston Celtics team. This is a Boston Celtics team that is 10 and one, and their starting center is Daniel Tice. I mean, if that doesn't, if that doesn't tell you the kind of coach that Brad Stevens is, that and this is a guy that. Uh, Tice has started uh, eight of the uh, eleven for the Celtics, uh, but but here recently, um, you know. And Evan, this is you know, I mean, how how many different st- uh, tweets or rumblings did you hear about uh, when things weren't working with the Celtics and with Kyrie Irving? People questioning Brad Stevens. I don't think they're questioning Stevens right now and the job that he has done to. Bringing you know with with the Celtics bringing in Kemba Walker, who has been an upgrade as you mentioned over Kyrie, and really not getting a ton from the front court at all. Uh, you have Tice, you have Ennis Cantor, but I don't think any of us would argue that those guys, Robert Williams, you know, that's a group of guys in the front court that when you get into the playoffs, that you would not trust. And so this is a team that the way they've played. I mean that you know they're they're a they're a halfway decent front court player away from really really contending it looks like at the Eastern Conference and Kemba Walker has been at the heart of it 24 and a half a night uh 5 rebounds nearly 5 assists you know he he gives you a lot of what Kyrie Irving gives you in terms of playmaking but where Kyrie Irving didn't pass the ball and would take on two and three defenders at times Kimball Walker doesn't do that. He will make the right play. He will outlet the ball to somebody up the floor in transition, and then they in turn uh, take it, uh, you know, attack the basket, make a play for themselves or for a teammate. You're just seeing the Celtics team with Jason Tatum, with Jalen Brown, Kimball Walker, 
Uh, and, and you've had Gordon Hayward going out now with an injury, and they really haven't missed a beat. It's been fun to watch this Celtics team go. And Boston is really happy for it because it looked to be just kind of a miserable experience the last year and change being a Boston Celtics fan. Every day it was, you know, Kyrie Irving had the had the event at the ticket holders. Well, if you have me, I'll come back. And then, you know, everything just kind of went downhill from there. And one thing and one player that it stopped going downhill for was Carmelo Anthony. Carmelo Anthony signed with the Portland Trailblazers on a non-guaranteed contract. It will become guaranteed in January. So, Cody Clark, is Carmelo Anthony still going to be on Portland's roster when it becomes guaranteed, yes or no? Uh, I think he is, and the reason is because of the injuries that this team has had at the uh at in in the uh, at the forward spot you, you've had uh you've had Zach Collins go out uh you've had uh Yusef Nurkic with that leg uh rehabbing his leg injury uh he has not made an appearance this year you know this is a team that's very very thin in the front court especially at forward and so they're going to bring in Carmelo and see what happens. But but I think, yes, Evan, because of the injury situation that we've seen, particularly at the power forward spot for this Trailblazers team, and frankly just not really getting out to a, a, a good start to the season, I, I do see Carmelo Anthony still being on this roster when the contract becomes guaranteed. And the important thing to note is they don't need Car- Carmelo Anthony to be Denver Nuggets Carmelo. We have Damian Lillard. We have C.J. McCollum. If he can just be the version of him that he is right now, I mean, he's still a liability when it comes to defense. But, I mean, if you need Carmelo Anthony to get you 15 points, he can do it. Right. They need a playmaker at that four spot. so So when they get... You know, when they get Nurkic back, who uh, had that devastating broken leg injury, when you get Nurkic back, that's going to that's going to help this team. But this was a Portland Trailblazers team that made the Western Conference Finals last year, and right now they are sitting at four and eight, uh, one of uh, and at the bottom of the Western Conference. And this is the move that you make when you look at who's available, and it's like, oh well, Carmelo Anthony is still there. Why not? Let's give him a run for a couple months, and it's a non-guaranteed deal. So if come January and it looks like Carmelo Anthony isn't what it used to be and he can't really play, okay, no problem. We just we just move on in January, and hopefully by then, guys like Nurkic and Collins are back. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what you're hoping for. This is a team that brought in Hassan Whiteside, uh, you know, hoping to just kind of reload. They 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 kept Rodney Hood. Uh, you know, with Zach Collins coming along as a young player, uh, bring in Kent Bazemore. You know, this is a team that, as you mentioned, made it to uh, a really, really deep playoff run. And then, you know, they're thinking, okay, you know, we're, we've got this group of guys. We're going to get Nurkic back. We bring in Whiteside, uh, who can play, who can start in the middle while Nurkic is out and then can be our backup center as well off the bench. That's a pretty good unit at the five spot, and it just hasn't worked out thus far for the Trailblazers. And so they're gonna say, "Hey, you know, here's uh, here's Carmelo Anthony. We've 
we've lost, uh, what is it, uh, six of our last seven after starting three and two. So this, you know, we're going to try this out. You know, we're going to see if he can make some plays for us at the four spot, at the power forward spot, and and see what happens. But you know, I kind of like the shakeup. You know, I think Carmelo still has some left in the tank. I think it's about Carmelo accepting uh, where he's at and what role he needs to play with an NBA team. But, you know, if he can have any semblance of that, I think he could be productive for Portland and give them some shot-making and playmaking at that forward spot that they are desperately in need of now with some of the injuries that they face. Well, time will tell to see how this works out for Portland. I'm rooting for Car- for Carmelo Anthony to have a workout in Portland. I mean, he probably should have been in the NBA before before now, but it's, it's good to see that he's getting another shot at it. But before we before we wrap up, Cody, uh, we're gonna I'm gonna go back to the NFL for a moment because I have a little bit of an exercise for you where I'm gonna have you be a team's GM, and a lot of GMs are gonna have some really hard decisions come quarterback time, and we might see a good chunk of the lead league move on from their starters. So I'm gonna give you a team and a quarterback and you t- and you tell me what you're going to do with them. Sound good? Oh boy. All right, here we go. I'm ready. Okay, first off, we're going to start in Florida and you are the the GM of the Jacksonville Jaguars. You just had an 8 game an 8-9 an game sample size of Minshew Mania. He didn't look great, but he looked like a competent NFL starting quarterback. So let's assume that come the offseason, there are some teams that really liked Gardner Minshew and you start getting calls about, hey, what's uh, what's the availability on Minshew? Uh, how seriously do you take those calls or do you hang on to Minshew in 2020? Uh, I take those calls pretty seriously, uh, always looking, but I would hold on to Minshew because of – uh, you've got a lot of money invested in Nick Foles, but we just saw Nick Foles go out with an injury. So you have a guy in Minshew who has proven to be able to play the position uh, as the backup and then came in as the starter and has, has played well for Jacksonville, has kind of you know kept them hanging around if they're able to get a couple wins here, a couple of breaks. Uh, they could kind of vault themselves right back up into the race uh, at the tail end of that wildcard picture. So... I hold on to Minshew because you're going to have a Nick Foles coming off of an injury, and that is something that would scare me just a little bit if I'm Jacksonville. So I'm keeping Minshew because he has shown me and proven to me that he can lead the team and play the position. That's a nice insurance policy for uh, a guy like Nick Foles. I think hanging on to him would be the right decision. Would be the right decision too. Staying in Florida, uh, Jameis Winston is an unrestricted free agent at the end of this season. He turns 26 on January 6th. There are, you get moments with Jameis Winston where you can maybe talk yourself into if he can just look more like the LA Rams version of himself where he threw for 385 yards and four touchdowns. Like I can see how you can talk yourself (laughs) into saying that, you know, we can stick with Jameis Winston but he's 24 and 39 as a starter. He's had 28 interceptions over his last 20 games. So Cody, 
do you bring Winston back for 2020 or do you let him walk and uh, take his chances on the market? I let him walk, take the chances on the market. I will say this. I think Tampa Bay is going to bring him back maybe on like a two-year deal. I think that's going to happen. I would not do it, but I think that's going to happen. Evan, I think we have a large enough sample size with Jameis Winston. This is who he is. You're going to get those performances where he goes to L.A. and absolutely throttles the Rams and looks like the uh, Jameis Winston that we saw at Florida State. And you're like, what is going on here? And then the very next week, he will come back and he'll throw three picks, and then he'll fumble once as well. And two of those interceptions, you're not entirely sure who the hell he was throwing it to. And you will just leave your head, you'll leave the game scratching your head not knowing what's going on. I think there's a large enough sample size on Jameis Winston. This is who he is. Uh, He's going to be able to make those plays with the wide receivers that he has, Mike Evans, Chris Godwin emerging this year. He has those weapons to be able to make those plays, but he's also always going to commit those turnovers because he's proven that that's what he does at the NFL level. The, the, the sample size, the games have shown that's who he seems to be. And so I, I, would, be, I would be making my uh, moves uh, looking at the draft, looking for the next quarterback in Tampa Bay. I think that might be the direction that they're headed in, but Jason Light, the GM that took him, is still there. And if Jason Light is still there, I think Winston's still going to be there. But there are times where you get the L.A. Rams game and you can talk yourself into, oh, you know, maybe, you know, maybe he he shows you why he was the number one overall pick. And then two weeks later, he goes to Carolina, has one touchdown, five interceptions. So it's you just never know what version of Jameis Winston you're going to get. Uh, to stick with that 2015 draft class, the guy that was took behind him, and this is the second to last one, the guy that was taken behind him was Marcus Mariota. Mariota has already been benched in Tennessee for Ryan Tannehill, and with the way Tannehill has played, it seems like the door has slammed shut at uh, any chance of a... Uh, Mariota to Tennessee extending beyond the 2019 season. Yeah, it sure does seem that way, Evan. Uh, You know, you look at it and I think Marcus Mariota, the route for him is now going to have to be, you know, maybe he could get a starting job somewhere else, but to sign on as a backup and, and try and reinvent himself that way. Tannehill signed a one year deal uh, with the with the Titans in this season, he will be unrestricted next year. But I think they the Titans and Tannehill uh, work out a deal that he comes back to Tennessee and he will be their quarterback uh, for the next couple of seasons as they try to figure out what's happening. Tannehill's thirty one; he'll be thirty two next year. Uh, seven years in the league. Next year will be his eighth. You know, he's, I don't think, the long-term future in Tennessee, but he definitely seems to be the guy that can get you to that next guy. So, that you know, I think Tennessee will be looking at the draft, will be looking at other avenues to see what they can bring in. But I think you've got that guy in Ryan Tannehill right now. I think they'll work out a deal and be able to um, be able to get Tannehill back in a Titans uniform, and they will... Work that out, and he will be the guy, and Mariota will have to find his way uh, a different way 
a, a different route uh, if he wants to continue his NFL future. It, it appears that he hasn't played since week six. Uh, the path to him is to take like a low-risk Blake Bortles contract where he's just the backup for the L.A. Rams. Uh, so the last one, and we're going to try and end this on a bit of a positive note. Uh, Drew Brees and the New Orleans Saints. Drew Brees, he's 40 years old, and there is a chance that this could be Brees's last season. If you are the GM of the New Orleans Saints and you just saw how well Teddy Bridgewater performed after Drew Brees went down, I am doing everything in my power to to have Bridgewater it's like, look, you're not going anywhere. You are staying here. I'm not even letting him hit the market. That is a great point, and I totally agree with that. I would not let him hit the market uh, either. But this is a really interesting scenario for me, Evan, because are the Saints able to m- – are the Saints going to be able to move off of Drew Brees? You know, we saw the Colts move off of Peyton Manning. Peyton Manning then went and won a Super Bowl, not in a Colts uniform. But when you had a guy like Andrew Luck standing there, you had the number one pick, you had to take Andrew Luck. He was that next guy, and he proved to be that next guy for the time that he was in the NFL before he retired. The Saints are in a predicament here because... How much longer does Drew Brees play? You can't you can't let Teddy Bridgewater hit the market. I agree with that. But you also can't pay Drew Brees and pay Teddy Bridgewater. So how long does Drew Brees want to play? Are the Saints willing to move off of Brees? Because I like what Bridgewater does for this team. And if you have some of those weapons that they have around him, Michael Thomas with Alvin Kamara, with Latavius Murray, with the defense that the Saints have put together, this is a really, really good football team. But you're in a situation where you can't afford to pay Drew Brees and then pay Teddy Bridgewater and say, you're going to be our backup making you know whatever that monetary value is uh, per year or for the life of his contract. So I'm very curious to see if the Saints are what they're going to do because are they going to say, you know, hey, it's time for us. We think Teddy's the guy. We're going to move off of Drew Brees. Or do they say, hey, we're going to stay loyal to Drew Brees. We're going to let him finish it out. We'll let Teddy Bridgewater walk and we'll hit the draft, hit the market to try to find the next guy. I'm fascinated by this because I feel like it, it, you know, it's a hard decision to move off somebody but this could be a situation where the Saints need to move off of Drew Brees to get to be able to keep Teddy Bridgewater. Well, that's the scenario that seems the most plausible if they dis- if Drew Brees doesn't just retire. Right, exactly. You know, there's a contention bit- upon, you know, maybe he does just hang it up. I mean, as it stands right now, there's a potential out in his contract after the 2020 season. Like they could theoretically and like this is like I almost feel like dirty just saying this sentence out loud. But if they cut Drew Brees, see, like it, it just doesn't sound right me saying it. He has a twenty-one point three million dollar dead cap hit. If he retires, which he's hinted at, is a possibility. Then 
I'm basing it on the assumption that at the end of the year, Drew Brees just calls it a career. If he does, then they immediately go to, we need to keep Teddy Bridgewater in this building because if we let him go, then we're back at square one. And for those of you of a certain age who don't know what life was like for the New Orleans Saints before Drew Brees, they were like the Browns South. <laughs> the the New Orleans Saints joined the NFL in 1967. They did not have a winning season until 1987. They did not win a playoff game until 2000. They went over 30 years between start of the franchise to winning a playoff game and went 20 years before winning a and 20 years before a winning season and they didn't win a division until 1991 so life before Drew Brees in New Orleans if you're a Saints fan was miserable i don't want to go back to that so if i'm a New Orleans Saints fan so if Breeze calls it a career. I'm barricading the door and telling Teddy Bridgewater, you're not going anywhere. Here's the contract. Yeah. I agree. I think Bridgewater, I'll tell you what, Bridgewater made himself a lot of money in that stretch uh, with the Saints. You know, people were looking at it going, hey, you know, Bridgewater coming in. You know, Saints defense is pretty good. They've got some weapons. You know, maybe, you know, they go 500 and just kind of stay afloat. Well, uh, all Teddy Bridgewater did was rattle pretty much all of them off. They beat the Seahawks, the Cowboys, the Bucks, the Jags, the Bears, the Cardinals. Cardinals with Drew Brees. Uh, all Bridgewater did was go five and zero. So he definitely made himself a ton of money. Whether it is going to be staying in New Orleans or moving on and taking a job somewhere else, but it's going to be uh, interesting to follow what the Saints do because you know. Drew Brees can make it easy for the organization if he decides to, you know, retire because then your priority is to lock up Bridgewater. And I would think Bridgewater would want to stay and then, you know, all is good. But if Drew Brees says, no, I want to play another year, I'm not retiring yet, that's when you get into an interesting situation because at that point, if you lose Bridgewater, you have Brees for one more year, then Brees retires after that year, then you don't have the solidified backup and now you don't have Drew Brees, and so you're you're in a much bigger predicament. So gonna be gonna be uh, I'm I'm fascinated to see what happens because you know, like I said, it, it's tough to move off of a guy, but we may be getting to the point where even if Brees says I want to stick around for another year or two, the Saints might be at a point where they have to say thanks but no thanks. That's going to be a fascinating scenario to watch in New Orleans at the end of the season. All right. Well, I believe that is the end of my uh, what would Cody Clark do if he was a general manager <laughs> experiment, because outside of that, the rest of the league seems kind of obvious. The ten, like the Bengals are running away with the number one overall pick with the number one overall pick. They're probably going to pick Tua or Joe Burrow. Miami looks like they're going to draft a guy. Chicago's a bit of a wild card. You don't know what they're going to do. Carolina's a bit of a wild card. We could have a lot of quarterback movement in the NFL in 2020, and that's part of why the NBA is so exciting because year to year, 
you don't know who's going to wind up on what team. And that's part of why baseball has died off because there's never going to be a, where's Mike Trout going to end up next season? It's like, well, he just signed a 13 year deal with the angels. He's not going anywhere. And in, in basketball, you look up and sometimes, Oh, LeBron James is on the Lakers now. Oh, Anthony Davis is on the Lakers now. Oh, okay. But in the NFL, there's never going to be a where if Aaron Rodgers hits the open market, where's Aaron Rodgers going to go? Because that's never going to happen. Yeah, no, it's a good point, and we could have a lot of uh, a lot of movement at the quarterback position, as you mentioned, in the NFL. Uh, going to be fun to watch for sure. Evan, a couple of stories to hit just real quick before we finish up. We'll stay with football. Uh, it is uh, Chase Young versus the NCAA. It is James Wiseman versus the NCAA. Let's stay with football, stay with Chase Young real quick. Uh, Young initially ruled uh, suspended for four games, I believe it was. He will now, after sitting out the Maryland game, he will now just miss one more game uh, with the two-game suspension for an NCAA rules violation. And Evan, this is, you know, there was a lot of outcry over this. I'm a guy who didn't like it either. This is why people are always bashing on the NCAA. Uh, Chase Young admitted that he accepted a loan uh, last year from someone he called a family friend. Uh, He repaid that loan in full, but the NCAA considered it an extra benefit because Young did not meet that friend until after his recruitment to Ohio State had started. So he has had to sit out two games that affects his NFL draft stock, I think, uh, exactly 0%, but uh, just another chance for people to bang on the NCAA for their handling of the Chase Young situation. Where did you stand on uh, on that whole deal? You know, stories like this are why when the Fair Pay to Play Act and all that and the legislation for name, image, and likeness where everybody was ready to dance on the NCAA's grave. This is why people were so excited to cheer the fall of the NCAA. And it's because stories like this. So he accepted a loan so his girlfriend could go to the Rose Bowl. And because of that, he has to miss two games. I mean, come on, what are we doing here? <laughs> right. Like, really? That That's, that's the thing that you're going to suspend him for? But, even as egregious and absurd as it is, the James Wiseman situation is even worse because the NCAA knew about this in May, ruled Wiseman eligible, and then just went back and said, you know, on second thought, nah, uh, he's he's not eligible. And then Memphis was going to go to court to fight it. They got a temporary restraining order, and it appears that they're not going to fight it because from a court of law standpoint, they don't really have much of a case other than the rules are dumb and we don't want to follow them, which uh, is not the kind of thing that a judge is going to be like, yeah, okay, I can see your point. But if I'm Memphis and I'm James Wiseman, apparently like whether or not he's ineligible, like falls on the university president, like the NCAA can't, mandate you it's not like a binding agreement where the ncaa can mandate him to sit down so i was just kind of hoping memphis would be like screw you and just play wiseman anyway and if they take the banner down they take the banner down we don't care 
Right. And, and hey, they were on that path. You know, I, I think a couple of games, maybe just one game, but played when Weissman was, had been deemed ineligible, the most recent one against Oregon. So Weissman now going to sit out uh, and they're going to try and work that out. But Evan, this is an interesting timeline with this whole deal because you can track this all the way back to 2008. I've got a little timeline for you. So back in 2008, Penny Hardaway donated a million dollars to Memphis. Uh, they constructed the Sports Hall of Fame. Uh, it was the largest donation, uh, single largest donation ever made by a former um, Memphis athlete to the department. So that happens in 2008. So Penny Hardaway is a booster. Uh, 2015, the uh, at East High School in Memphis, the boys basketball coach uh, tragically died after a long battle with colon cancer, Desmond Merriweather. So Penny Hardaway takes over as the head coach. He was an assistant on Merriweather's staff when Merriweather passed away. So that's in 2015. In 2016, uh, East wins a state title. Uh, James Wiseman had been playing for Penny Hardaway and his AAU basketball team. Uh, so, and then in 2017, Hardaway provided, uh, I think they said roughly $1,100 in relocation and living expenses to Wiseman's mother. And then Wiseman enrolled uh, in his junior year at East in 2017. Uh, Memphis fired Tubby Smith in 2018. Uh, East wins another title. Memphis hires Penny Hardaway. Uh, and so they made, you know, their first face-to-face -face contact or whatever with Weissman and Weissman commits to Memphis and he signs with the Tigers and whatnot. And so now the NCAA, as you mentioned, this is something that they had, you know, been following along and already knew about, but they uh, were, I guess, release his certification of amateurism. So they said, yeah, it's okay. And then they say, okay, no, that was an error. They say that in May. That was an error that should not have happened. And now you've got this whole, uh, they deemed him ineligible on November 5th. Uh, Weissman played a couple of games. There was a, a lawsuit by Weissman against the NCAA. That has, uh, as you pointed out, that has been now rescinded. And I believe where we stand is that Wiseman is now going to work with the NCAA. He will sit out, and they will try to figure that whole deal out. Evan, this doesn't affect, I don't think, Wiseman as you know the top overall pick or one of the top couple of picks in the NBA lottery. But this is a wild situation. And again, the NCAA issuing his certification of amateurism and then saying, oh, no, we made a mistake. That was in error. Again, another situation where people banging on the NCAA for what they are doing to uh, in the instances of some of these college athletes. And there's all the conspiracy theories of, oh, of course they do it to the Memphis guy. Like, if he played at Kentucky, I guarantee that they just would have left him alone. Like, I think uh, Jerry, Tar Jerry Tarkanian had the famous line about the NCAA that they're so mad at Kentucky that they put Cleveland State on probation. <laughs> right. That it's just generally understood if you're kind of the big guy, the NCAA just looks the other way and just pretend. And, you know, they just kind of look the other way if you're the big fish. Because college college basketball is an institution, just the NCAA as an institution 
we sort of have a preconceived idea of, okay, here are the teams that are supposed to be good, and then there's everybody else. And if somebody from the everybody else tries to be really good, there is strong resistance to that in ways that I don't fully understand. And I don't see why you like he was all, he was declared eligible and then they're like you know what on second thought no no he's not like that's that just seems a bit suspicious to me like this is a thing you'd already knew about you had made a ruling and then you just went back and made another ruling in a court of law you're not allowed to do that like if this was a court case and they settled like the court can't unsettle it and put the guy back on trial like that's not how this works so it's it's just a weird situation and a stuff like that the uh yeah that, that's why people are, were ready to bury the ncaa but is it going to hurt him being the number one overall pick absolutely not Kyrie irving was injured the whole time at duke and played conservatively what 15 10 15 games I don't I don't even think that I think it was like six or eight games well he wound up being the number one pick anyway so it doesn't matter like this isn't like the NFL where a guy can miss a whole season and go from a top five pick to like the third round because he hasn't missed a year in the M- in the NBA there isn't there isn't a lot of movement from where we think guys are going to go in the beginning of the year to where they wind up going by the time the draft rolls around. There isn't a lot of movement in basketball. You kind of know where everybody's going to go. So I think at this point, it's incredibly likely that James Wiseman is going to be the number one pick. And if he's not the number one overall pick, it's because the Cole Anthony kid at North Carolina just goes insane and he's so good that the that they're like we have to take this guy number one. He's the most exciting, dynamic right. guard available in this draft class. Yeah, absolutely. I think Weissman will still be there. Uh, when we look at the NCAA on the football side, uh, Chase Young is going to be a top pick. So we'll continue to follow those situations. Young will sit one more game. Weissman's situation is one uh, that will continue to get monitored as well. Uh, Evan, appreciate it, my man. This has been uh, this has been a, a pretty robust podcast. We've covered a lot of stuff. Uh, I appreciate uh, you coming on and, and being able to reschedule. Things got a little crazy for me during the week, so recording this special episode of the From the Booth podcast on a Saturday uh, before the slate of college football games get underway. Uh, Evan, I appreciate it, my man. Everybody, check out his uh, even, uh, his podcast as well, the Evan Eichen. Uh, show his interview series uh, the one year anniversary of that happening this year so definitely make sure you uh, make sure people check that one out thank you Uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar with how the podcast works I release interviews every other Thursday and there's like an occasional special episodes for special occasions like when I can just get somebody that I normally wouldn't get on the on the outside Uh, I think probably the most uh famous example of that would be when i got like a couple of uh, guys from youtube to come on to do the show but other than that we it releases every other thursday uh i've got three more episodes coming out uh we've got one next week the one and then we've got a couple in december and then i'm going to take a break until january of 2020 so 
only a couple more left uh, in the year before I uh, take an extended break from it. Indeed. So check out the Evan Eichen show, uh, the From the Booth podcast right here. Check us out as well. We appreciate everybody tuning in uh, on a weekly basis. Give us a follow on Twitter at From the Booth Podcast. Uh, find us on your favorite podcast platform, uh, however you get your podcasts, uh, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher. Uh, we're on Podbean. We're on iHeart uh, Radio as well. Anywhere you get your podcast, you can dial us up. So uh, subscribe to us. Make sure you're getting notifications about our episodes. If you're using Apple Podcasts, uh, do us a favor. Give us a five-star rating. Drop us a comment about how you enjoy the show. Uh, some of you have already done that. We greatly appreciate that. That really helps us out. So we uh, we are indebted to you for that. But I think that's going to do it for us here on this week's episode of the From the Booth podcast. For my co-host, Evan Eichen, I'm Cody Clark. Thank you all for listening, and thanks for tuning in to another week here on the From the Booth podcast. <laughs>